Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanities, and joining me this week is my co-host, Josh Molina, a post-Christmas Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil, but it's really not post-Christmas because Christmas does not come until I get to do a podcast with you. So today, <laughs> it has arrived. So this is my gift to you, so congratulations. <laughs> you. I appreciate um, it. <laughs> as we record this, uh, it is actually Monday, December 27th, so we are technically post Christmas. Uh, and we're actually and we're late on this too. And I'm sure all you listeners will forgive us because, uh, you know, Christmas and we both we both have kids and had a lot of a lot of stuff going on this la- this last weekend. But we said we would get an episode up on Monday. So here you go. Uh, we won't take up too much of your time, but we thought it'd be fun to kind of do a, a strike force version of the 12 days of Christmas. No, we are not going to sing this to you, but we are going to go through 12 gifts that we feel like strike force gave us uh, during its run. So without further ado, Josh, if you're ready, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm ready. As far as I'm concerned, there's like 100 Strikeforce gifts. Yeah, there you go. We'll, we'll whittle them down to 12 for the audience. There you go. Yeah, we had to work really hard to do this. but And, and I will mention, this is somewhat in order. Uh, it's not a perfect order for sure. But yeah, let's, let's have some fun with this. So number one, on the first day of Christmas, Strikeforce gave us Frank Shamrock's career resurgence. So just so everybody knows, you got to remember, Frank Shamrock was a true pioneer of MMA. He was one of the first guys, along with guys like Don Fry, to combine more than one discipline. And Frank really took took it to another level. I mean, he had the submission wrestling, of course. He be- began to really work on his striking. Uh, you know, he obviously his cardio was amazing. And, and it, you know, Frank, Frank was the first strike force. I mean, or I'm sorry, first UFC light heavyweight champion, although really it was more of a middleweight, uh, a middleweight title. But he had an amazing career in the UFC. And then he abruptly walked away from the sport. Uh, and then he decided to, to come back when Frank, I'm sorry, when Scott Coker and Strikeforce came calling. So we're going to call it, we're going to say, yeah, that was one of the first gifts. And Frank's, you know, it's interesting that he's so tied to the beginning of Strikeforce. He only fought four times with the promotion, but let's quickly run down these Shamrock versus Gracie. And of course, this was the largest live attendance in us MMA history at the time, sold out the shark tank in San Jose, California and drew, drew over 18,000 fans. It was the first and most attended. Uh, this is kind of a sad note actually, but it was the highest attendance strike force ever got was their first event. So in a way it was all downhill <laughs> from, from, from there. I but, think you have to, you kind of have to be in the Bay area to understand how big, this event was it didn't get national attention but in the bay area it was it was huge it, i mean it was it was just I mean, it was regional but you can't get any bigger when it comes to regional promotion of an mma card and it it sold out the shark tank and and that was that was just a huge deal and yeah it was downhill from there i don't think because things were not as good but it was just because it was just you know those two names right and it yeah. was just the first time they had promoted it but yeah that, that was that was great it's just this incredible live moment and for years they were able to say, even while the UFC was was getting big, hey, nobody's attended. A sh- more people have attended our Strikeforce shows than your UFC shows at one time in history. So they were able to say that for a long time. Yeah, I think they held the record for five years. So yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, the Shamrock versus Baroni fight didn't sell quite as well. I believe the attendance was around 11,000, but that I, that is still one of my favorite uh, fights in strike force history for sure the build the feud and then just the performance of both men in the cage but especially of course frank because he won that and that was just an amazing amazing fight shamrock versus kung lee which was seen as kind of a passing of the torch 
uh, in terms of San Jose because you had two San Jose guys uh, fighting each other and Kung Lee broke his arm and that was of course an amazing fight as well love that fight uh, even though Frank who I, I consider to be uh, you know something of a friend you know was, was the one that went down in defeat there but an amazing fight that really that established Kung Lee as like the next standard bearer uh, for the promotion unfortunately due to his movie career and just kind of inactivity um, it probably didn't take off the way that Scott Coker would have liked, but still, you know, amazing. And then, of course, the Shamrock versus Diaz fight, which ended up being uh, Frank Shamrock's swan song in MMA and Strike Force. But just a- another really gritty performance by Frank Diaz was just way too much, way too young, way too skilled. And again, an amazing fight. And again, something of a passing of the torch, so to speak, with Diaz, who did go. He was, he, and we'll talk a little bit more about about Nick in a little bit, but. Yeah, you you got to say Frank Frank really proved just how important important of a figure he was in MMA, and, and that was you know we can give a lot of Coke, uh, a lot of credit to Scott Coker and and of course Strikeforce, but of course Frank. So that's the first first gift. Yeah, go ahead. Let me add a couple things here, and to me, and you can disagree with me here, but to me at this time, Ken Shamrock was the more well-known Shamrock of the two. And, you know, he had this this uh, career in uh, UFC. He was in the WWE. And, of course, Frank did too, but he wasn't as popular. So, for me, to see Frank Shamrock in the Strike Force was like, wow, there's, like, this other Shamrock who's actually a really good announcer too, you know, and he's a really good fighter. So, I think it exposed people to uh, who Frank Shamrock was, and, and it wasn't just, like, the other Shamrock brother. Do you recall that period where Ken Shamrock was, like the shamrock guy or yeah. were they always oh, 100%. equal yeah 100 yeah. percent. and just to clarify you, you mentioned frank was in that too you were talking about the ufc not Correct. wwf or wwe because yeah. frank was never there uh, but yeah yeah i mean you have so you have ken who sticks with the ufc for a while and then frank actually kind of rose up when ken was in wwe and then essentially when ken came back frank was gone again and frank was out of it for i think he had one fight maybe over the course of five years and Ken, at that point, now you're like, you can give credit to Ken, of course, along with Dana and the Fertitta brothers, but Ken and Tito, their trilogy uh, of fights, especially the first one, were so important to the UFC. And then when they both coached, I think it was season three, which is my favorite season of The Ultimate Fighter, when they coached, I mean, that took it to another level, even though the fight itself wasn't all that great. Uh, but there, there, yeah, Ken was a huge, huge name, a, ho- a household name at that point for sure. While Frank, again, had kind of just, well, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but he wasn't competing. And so, yeah, he was, you know, Ken was definitely the bigger shamrock. And, and to this day, I mean, you can make a case that Ken's the bigger shamrock be- because of just his notoriety within the UFC. I mean, you know, Frank, again, left in whatever, 2000, 2001, whatever that was, and has never been back. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, Ken has gone back, Ken's fought in Bellator, you know, that sort of thing. So I think Ken's still ultimately the bigger shamrock, even if Frank is the better fighter uh, and the and the better businessman and that sort of thing. But, yeah, there, I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. Now, now, you mentioned Frank Shamrock has never been in the WWE, and that is true. But do you know the history of when Mickey Rourke shot his angle with Chris Jericho? Do you know what Mickey Rourke did? Do you remember this? Uh, he brought... Frank Shamrock, and I think it was Nick Diaz, or it might have been Nate, because he was concerned Jericho was going to try to shoot on him 
in oh, the no. fight. Oh, I know oh yeah, you need to look this up. This is crazy Mickey Rourke stuff. He was concerned Jericho was going to try to swerve him and shoot on him. So he brought Frank with him. So Frank, and Frank was in the audience, so Frank could jump the rail and take out Jericho. <laughs> look it up. It is a crazy story um, that is true. Um, so, so yeah, Frank never got into WWE because Vince McMahon probably would have looked at him and put him on NXT or something. But because um, because you know he wasn't seven foot tall. But that is that is a true story. I'm just googling this, and yeah, I'm seeing uh, yeah Mickey brought Shamrock to WrestleMania in case things went south with Jericho. So that's <laughs> wow. That's kind of crazy. Okay, that's, <laughs> I've never heard that before. Wow. See that I I do bring value to this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good insight. That's that's good stuff. All right, well let's move on. On the second day of Christmas, Strike Force gave to me the introduction of Kung Lee, and that rhymed. Look at that. Wow. Uh, so uh, you know, again, we mentioned that D, that that Shamrock kind of passed the torch to Kung Lee, and Kung Lee being a Sanchao kickboxing star in the San Jose area. He was a big deal. I knew who he was uh, before he started with Strike Force. He fought on the final Strike Force kickboxing card, which I was there in person. And so to see him, you know, the rise to, to start him, and they did a really good job building him up, giving giving him guys that had credibility, but definitely guys that he could beat, and he did. And, and so, you know, and then he, by the time he got to Frank, he was ready to go, and that was pretty awesome. So, yeah, I, you got to definitely sing Kung – uh, you know, he did get his run in the UFC and, and I would have liked to have had that have been more than it was. But as we've discussed, Kung kind of came along probably 10 years too late in MMA. If he had been able to do it when he was 25 rather than 35, probably would have had a longer career. He only had 12 MMA fights, but still he made an impact. And for a while there, he was a really big deal within MMA. Yeah, it's too bad Kung did not start earlier. If you ever had the opportunity to see him throw his kicks live, like in person, you're just like, how would anybody survive getting hit by that? And obviously, when he did hit people with those kicks, he usually won his fights. So, just so unique. Frank Shamrock used to call him uh, like like a movie-style movie, movie style, uh, fighter because his kicks were like they were staged in Hollywood. It was almost like a fake martial arts film because they were so dramatic, but he did them for real and so i mean that, that was really cool i've interviewed kung lee several times and the things that always strikes me about him is um you know he's like if you take conor mcgregor on one level like kung's the opposite kung is like humble like he's like a dude if you met him whether you're a billionaire or whether you got 10 bucks in your pocket he's going to treat you the same you know he's like a really solid humble grounded dude and i think that comes across in you know the interviews we've done with him on this show um quick thing uh you know after kung lee i just want to throw this in because i know uh, you don't share the same affinity for this individual that i do but um you know we also saw Luke Rockhold, who was a product of AKA, and he was also a tremendous striker with his legs, you know, a great kicker. Um, he's the same kind of guy who do these roundhouse kicks. And uh, he wasn't quite as fast as Kung Lee. Uh, he wasn't quite as known for this as Kung Lee because Luke was also a great grappler and, you know, he'd submit people on the ground. But, but uh, you know, we also saw, so we can thank Strikeforce for giving us Luke Rockhold, who... Had he not been injury prone, who knows? He's still fighting today. He became a strike force champion. He became a UFC champion. And, you know, he just looks the part, you know. And I, I can't believe he wasn't in the UFC from the beginning because, you know, he's like a classic, you know, sort of, you know, a star that they could have made out of him. But I just wanted to, like, note the transition from Kunk Lee to eventually Luke Rockhold. I will allow it. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we want to want to move along quickly here. On the third day of Christmas, Strike Force gave to me the Gilbert Melendez Josh Thompson trilogy, perhaps the greatest trilogy in terms of in cage action uh, of all the famous trilogies out there. And I know that that's a, a high bar to set. I mean, obviously within Strike Force, it's the greatest trilogy. It might be the only trilogy uh, in the history of Strike Force, but. Uh, regardless, even though it doesn't get the, it's not remembered as much as some of the other, you know, and we wouldn't call it a feud because they were always respectful and got along well. But as far as some of the other trilogies that we've seen in MMA history, it may not be the one that, you know, first comes to mind, but you can't beat those three fights in terms of in-cage action. I mean, just amazing, amazing 25-minute battles each time, and it was great to uh, to be able to experience that and see that. And we're not we're not to their final fight in our, you know, in, in terms of, uh, chronologically speaking, where we're at in the, in the podcast. So I'm looking forward to covering that third fight pretty soon here. All right. On the fourth day of Christmas, Strike Force gave to me a national platform for Mauro Ranallo. So uh, Mauro, of course, had been the, the pride commentator. Uh, and, and so, you know, we thought, oh, we might see him go over to the UFC once the UFC bought pride, and that never happened. Instead, Morrow was over with the Showtime guys, and so he was doing, I don't know if he was do, doing glory kickboxing at that time, but he was doing Showtime boxing. Uh, but to see Morrow come back on a national stage here in the States, and I think that was his first time uh, as far as being a you know, nationally known commentator for MMA in the, in the States. I mean, that was just awesome. And obviously Josh, you and I are both huge fans of Morrow. And I'm really glad that strike force basically helped introduce him to the American audience. Cause he, to me, he's the greatest MMA commentator of all time. And, and I'm glad that we got to see him progress from being kind of a, a color man when they brought in Gus Johnson, who was a bigger name to being in his rightful place as the play by play guy. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Strike force. Thank you, Scott Coker for Morrow Ronaldo. That should be number one on our list now that Maybe. I think about it. No. Maybe. <laughs> no, um, um, uh, Morrow with his shaved head or with his nice hair. Either he, way. Whatever version uh, works out great. Uh, but, you know, he's like Al Michaels. Uh, he's like Jim Ross, uh, Howard Costell. I mean, he's the best of his sport, uh, no doubt. And, uh, I mean, I, he's still a young dude, you know. I don't know. Will we ever see him in the UFC? I mean. I doubt it. I doubt the, it. He should be. I mean, yeah. I, but, you know, he, we could go on and on and on on his calls. People can find him on YouTube. But he's this perfect combination of voice, charisma, personality with knowledge. And that's what makes him great. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's continue. On the fifth day of Christmas, Strike Force gave to me the greatest run of Nick Diaz's career. He went six and zero in Strike Force, undefeated, won the welterweight title. We'll quickly kind of set the stage here, but he had obviously been with the UFC. He went over to Pride, had that ama- one of my favorite fights in MMA history, his bout with Takanori Gomi. Uh, just an incredible, incredible fight. If you've never seen that, you should definitely check it out. Goes over to Elite XC, has a, a four-fight run there, and then he ends up going over to Strike Force. And so his first fight was with Frank Shamrock. Talk about you know <laughs> coming in and, and just going right after the king. But he comes in, faces Frank Shamrock, TKOs him, submits Scott Smith in another memorable fight, takes on Marius Saromskis and TKOs him pretty quickly. Uh, Then he fights Hayota Sakurai uh, in Dream. Then he comes back to strike force, gets revenge against KJ Nunes with a unanimous decision. That was his only fight in strike force that went to a decision. Then he submits Cyborg Santos and then wraps up his run with the promotion with a TKO uh, win over Paul Daly in one of the best one-round fights in strike force history. So just an incredible, incredible run. And he, he, you know, headlined a bunch of fights 
with with the promotion. It was an extremely important part of it. So I mean, four of his six strike force strike force fights were main events, and you know we talk about oh yeah, he's just a great fighter overall. Keep in mind. After he left Strikeforce, he's had five fights since 2011, and he's only won one of them. And so there's no doubt that his best run, as despite being so well-known and the UFC giving him a platform to be so well-known you know, in, uh, his no question about it, his best run was with Strikeforce. That's where he was most at home. That's where he was at his absolute best. So thank you, Scott Coker and Strikeforce, for giving us the, just the most memorable and best run of Nick Diaz's career. And, and it's a sad reminder, actually, of how personality and trash-talking and sort of having a, a dark side to you as a person that the UFC markets can make you a lot of money and have you a long career, have give yourself a long career when you're actually not even competing at the top of your sport anymore. And we've seen yeah. this. We've seen it with Nick. We look at that with Conor McGregor in the last few years. Um, so I guess it's good and bad. Uh, personality, you're going to make some money, even if you're not winning a whole lot of fights. And we saw that during Nick Diaz's UFC run. 100%. All right. Bringing us to halfway through on the sixth day of Christmas, Strikeforce gave to me Carano versus Cyborg, which was so important because it proved that women's MMA, when properly promoted and with the right athletes involved, was a viable entity uh, within the sport of mixed martial arts, drew a very, very strong crowd uh, to the the Shark Tank in San Jose, drew very well on Showtime. I mean, there's just, you know, it, it was huge that Gina Carano and Chris Cyborg were able to pull off what they were able to pull off. I mean, it, it just was an amazing, amazingly well-promoted event and, and just something that will, again, go down in history. Drew almost 14,000 fans to the HP Pavilion, to the Shark Tank. And again, in the main, it was the first time in MMA history that a women's fight had main evented a, a national card. Obviously, there had been women's fights before, and there had been events that had been headlined by women, but they were never a nationally promoted event like this. And those women were able to not only deliver in terms of you know, promoting and, 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 you know, drawing and all of that, but also in terms of in-cage action, they delivered and it set the stage for the rise of Chris Cyborg and then the eventual emergence of Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate, and some others as well. So it's such an important bout. And so we're grateful for that today. Yeah, you said it perfectly. It is the birth of women's MMA in the United States. And um, if it wasn't for Scott Coker doing it, you know, we'd not look at today. We've got this incredible women's division in the UFC. So just just amazing, just just incredible. And I think this could be number one, too. You know, you could say that, hey, Strikeforce, you know, paved the way for women's mixed martial arts in America. Yeah. All right. On the seventh day of Christmas, Strikeforce gave to me Fedor coming to America. This is kind of a this is one of those ones where you get the gift and at first it looks great, but then it falls apart <laughs> uh, because unfortunately Fedor's run with with Strikeforce did not go how any of us wanted, how Scott, Scott Coker wanted, how Fedor wanted, how, you know, Fedor's fans wanted. But it was still a big deal, it, you know, coming off of, of pride and not being able to strike a deal with Dana and the UFC. I mean, he needed a national promotion. It was great for him to make his promotional home with a United States promotion for for a run there and again didn't go the way we wanted it to but uh, it was it was definitely a big deal you know uh, I just want to add something here Uh, Fedor had this mystique about him for a lot of MMA fans even though they had not seen him in the UFC he he was you know 
known for his incredible ability to fight guys who were bigger, rally, come from behind. He had this great career in pride. You could find clips of him if you weren't like, you know, already watching them live. But when he showed up in, in Strike Force and it was promoted as this primetime card, this was like a big deal because finally mainstream America could see who, who's this Russian MMA fighter. Like, I keep hearing about this guy Fedor's pound for pound the best of all time, but he's not in the UFC, so I, I don't understand. Like, what's the deal? And so here he is on national TV. Uh, and, you know, he had fought for Affliction. He had done some pay-per-view things. Not a lot of people saw those pay-per-views, but here he was on CBS, right? So everybody could who's flipping channels, you know, so whether it's guys like you and I, Phil, or 70-year-olds who watch TV every Saturday night, you know, and could see him on they got to see this, and it was just incredible. And I just want to note when he knocked out Brett Rogers, I mean, that was one of the greatest strike force memories and, and as far as I'm concerned because Brett had him hurt. Can you imagine if Brett Rogers would have knocked Fedor out in his oh, debut? But Fedor rose from the ashes and just landed this incredible punch and then pummeled Brett. And honestly, it ended Brett Rogers because he was never the same after that either. Nope. And, nope. and so Fedor got his moment, right? He got his moment in the U.S. on national TV. And uh, it was you know, it was like almost 5 million people, if you remember, who watched that show. I mean, that, that's a lot of people for that time for MMA. So, um, I, you know, I, that, that was pretty cool. And uh, who cares about what happened? We're never going to talk about Fabrizio Verdu. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> well, we don't have to now. He's as far as where we're at in the the history of, of strike force fedor or i'm sorry uh fabricio's done so we don't have to talk about him anymore good so <laughs> all right moving moving on on the eighth day of christmas strike force gave to me the matchmaking talents and efforts of scott coker and rich chow uh, you know look at the end of the day strike force had a lot of fun fights as you kind of like look through their their history i, I you know re, re um reawakening the MMA audience to Shamrock versus Gracie, that famous feud, uh, you know, tank having tank Abbott, you know, we forget about that sometimes, but tank Abbott was had a cup of coffee and strike force took on the headhunter, Paul Buentello, one of my favorites, you know, Shamrock versus Baroni, just a pro wrestling style feud and the way that it was promoted. They did a one night middleweight tournament between, you know, four different competitors. Uh, yeah, that's just fun stuff. You know, I mean, we unfortunately got to see bat, had to see Bob Sapp compete in the promotion, but you know, that was that was a little bit of a mistake, but that was a big name to bring in at that time. Putting together, matching together Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez, all the Shamrock fights, all the Diaz fights. We already talked about Corano versus Cyborg, bringing in Fedor. Uh, you know, they just, there's so much that they did that was just fun. You know, it was fun to watch these fights. It was fun to watch these events. And, of course, Josh, you and I are enjoying uh, going through them. Yeah, you have some duds sometimes like Overeem versus Verdun. You, you know, you have some stuff that doesn't go the way that you want it to go. But, you know, by and large, these are good fights. These are fun fights. So, again, I'm, I'm appreciative of the, the matchmaking that was given to us over the years. And then speaking of, on the ninth day of Christmas, Strikeforce gave to me the heavyweight Grand Prix. It was, you know, a very unique thing to the States at that time. Dana's never really big been big on tournaments. And, and I and I like I appreciate a good tournament. You know, it'd be nice to be able to see them go down in one night. Those are very difficult to to pull off. There's injuries. There's 
okay, it's very difficult to pull those off. So I understand why somebody like Dana wouldn't want to do those. But doing one over time, I think that's pretty cool. It's part of Bellator's model. I, I think it's a cool idea. I like I like it. I like the way that it that it's you know I like the way that they're laid out. And so I I'd say that might be their greatest matchmaking or most innovative or unique matchmaking, uh, you know, thing that they did during Strikeforce. And and I'm grateful for it. I think it was pretty cool. You know, I'm still waiting for a tag team MMA on the mainstream. But I'll take the Grand Prix, right? Yeah, I don't think you're <laughs> going to see that anytime ever. So at least in the states, uh, they, you yeah. see those like videos sometimes of like you know like Russia or like over in, you know whatever, and they're you know five guys fighting each other at the same time, and you know guys are like coming over and punching the other guy in the face, and then going back to like yeah, I just that's not to me that's not MMA, and that's not something I'm interested <laughs> in. So hopefully we never see that over here. But yeah, I, I just I don't think any athletic commission in the states would ever approve something like that. So yeah, I don't think it's something we'll have to worry about. <laughs> no, no, I agree with you. I'm just you know obviously joking over here, but yeah, Grand Prix was unique and visionary, and we don't see enough of it here in the U.S. You know th- those type of tournaments. All right, moving on. We got just a few left here on the tenth day of Christmas. Strike Force gave to me. Ronda Rousey. <laughs> There's some 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 more rhyming for you, but hey, she went four and zero in Strike Force. I, I until we kind of dug into her a little bit recently, I hadn't realized just how much of a killer she was in the cage. I, I mean, just just an incredible run in MMA overall. She had twelve. She was twelve and two. None of her fights ever went to uh, went to a, a decision nine submissions, three knockouts in terms of her victories. When she started with strike force, she was only two and Oh, she submitted her first eight opponents. I mean, and that includes her run in strike force. She won by arm bar with every single fight of her first eight wins. And that's just, that's amazing. And it's not like she was fighting, you know, weaklings. I mean, Julia Budd is a tough competitor. Obviously Misha Tate, one of the greats, Sarah Kaufman, the first strike force women's bantamweight title just walked right through her. You know, Liz Carmouche, when she gets over to the UFC, very tough competitor, takes on Misha Tate once again, beats her. Sarah McMahon, an Olympic, uh, I think silver medalist, if I remember correct, correctly. Alexis Davis, she knocks out in 16 seconds. Kat Zingano, she submits in 14 seconds. And then Beth Correa knocks her out in 34 seconds, and that was the end of her run as far as her wins because she lost to Holly Holm and Amanda Nunez next in their last two fights. But obviously just an incredible athlete, a great performer. And she essentially is the one that convinced Dana, not saying they sat down and talked about it at a table, but convinced Dana that women's MMA was viable. I, I you got to look at Carano and cyborg as like, Hey, that's the one that really put it on the map. But Rhonda is the one that convinced Dana who had said he would never do women's MMA. He signs her. She becomes the first woman signed to the UFC as a fighter brings her over, gives her the UFC Bantamweight title. She prompts, promptly defends it successfully. Uh, yeah, I mean, just there's, as far as in the cage, like there's really nothing negative you can say about Ronda Rousey other than her attitude in my in my, <laughs> in my opinion. But yeah, she, Strikeforce gave her the platform. And again, Strikeforce made women's MMA possible on, on the stage that we see it. And Ronda was a big part of that. Such a pro wrestling move to just hire her and give her a belt. Give her the belt. Her the I champion. mean, come on. Like, just hand her the big <laughs> Triple H. Give her the – hand her the big gold belt. I mean, what a heel thing to do. But <laughs> but Ronda, you know, she approved it, you know, by going out and defending it successfully. So, yeah. a bunch of times. 
You know, in preparation for the show, because you know I do, I do deep preparation for for this, just like you, Phil. I went out and watched uh, Ronda Rousey's uh, championship victory over Misha Tate when she won the Strikeforce title in, um, you know, the bantamweight division. And wow, this is crazy. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, we haven't got there yet in our uh, show, but right. she she taps out Tate, and she just stands up and walks around like there's no smile, there's no celebration. She's just like, okay, I won the fight. What's next? It's crazy. It's such a contrast to so many people who win titles and who just like, you know, go, they jump on the top of the cage and, you know, they start yelling at people in the crowd. Like, she didn't celebrate at all. She just kind of just said, hey, I won. So I think it says a lot about her personality and just what a, what a tiger killer lion she was, you know, at this time in her career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, defended her defended her women's bantamweight title six times in the UFC. I mean, just an amazing, amazing run. And you just, yeah, it's hard to, I, I mean, she, you know, there's people like, uh, obviously Amanda Nunez, who's coming off a loss as we record this, but you know, she won the women's bantamweight title. She's a two, two title, you know, two belt holder. She beat Chris Cyborg. She's defended. She defended both the featherweight and the bantamweight titles successfully. I mean, that, come on, like that's, that's ridiculous. And then Cyborg, you know, strike force, title holder, Invicta title holder, UFC title holder, Bellator title. I mean, she wins the belt everywhere she goes. And so she's obviously amazing as well. But Ronda is right up there. We've talked about the, uh, you know, kind of the Mount Rushmore of women in terms of strike force fighters. And, uh, you know, obviously Ronda's, if not position number one, you know, she's number two, but might even be number one. So pretty amazing. All right. We got a couple more here. On the 11th day of Christmas, Strikeforce gave to me just a bunch of crazy moments. I mean, just incredible amount of, of knockouts and come from behind stuff. So we'll quickly run down a few of these. But Robbie Lawler's one-punch knockout of Melvin Manoff, if you don't remember that, in Miami, Melvin had just been just, just destroying Robbie Lawler with leg kicks. I mean, he was hurt from the leg kicks. He, I believe he landed two punches. One was to Melvin's dome on the feet, and then one was to him on the on the mat, and that was it. So Lawler only got off two strikes, but he made him count. One of the greatest, just like I mean, you say, call it a comeback. It wasn't really a comeback. It was just like a like a last ditch. Like my legs going, I gotta I gotta hit this guy, and he did. Of course, the miracle in San Jose, Scott Smith coming back against Kung Lee, and that was a true comeback. Smith had get, been getting beat up for two and a half rounds. He lands. Kung makes a mistake. Scott Smith takes advantage of it. We hear the the very memorable call from Mauro Ranallo on, on commentary and just an incredible Christmas present for Josh and all of Scott Smith's fans, of course. Uh, and then how about 40-year-old Dan Henderson, who's you know, probably thinking people are thinking he's past his prime. He knocks out Feijal to win the strike force light heavyweight belt. I mean, that was incredible. Fejia much bigger. Hendo didn't have to cut weight to make 205. So for him to be able to do that at that age and where he was at, all the miles on his body, the Olympic wrestling, all the amateur wrestling, and then all the fights in the UFC, that was just an amazing moment as well. And then, of course, one of the most brutal uppercut knockouts you will ever see, Nate Marcourt knocking out Tyron Woodley to win the strike force welterweight belt. I Like, if you, I, Josh, you and I have talked about this a little bit offline before that slow, if you, it's, you can find it on, on YouTube, there's a slow-mo version of the uppercut and it is like, uh, yeah, like, like watching some guy give another guy CTE with one punch. Like it was <laughs> just, just brutal. And, and one of the nastiest knockouts that you'll ever see. 
So yeah, I, I just I mean that knockout. I remember being stunned because Tyron Woodley was rising. Nate was kind of past his prime, and it was just like wow, what a punch! I've never seen an MMA knockout like that before. And to this day, I think it it made Tyron Woodley less of a fighter because even though he went on to strike to UFC and won the title. He was always really cautious with the stand-up through this. And uh, I know he knocked out Robbie Lawler and crazy lucky punch, but but uh, I think he made Tyron afraid of getting hit. And that's why we had these like horribly boring Stephen Thompson fights in the UFC with him. But um, yeah, that, that was a crazy knockout. And uh, it showed me right away that Tyron, boy, you want to beat him, just hit him in the face. He did not <laughs> like to get hit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, and then finally wrapping things up on the 12th day of Christmas, Strikeforce gave to me an alternative to the UFC. Man, more of these, uh, I did not mean for any of these to, to rhyme. That was not on purpose, but this worked out well. Uh, but, hey, you know, that's it might be the greatest gift of all that they gave us was there was an, an alternative. There was another promotion that was doing things a bit differently that we could watch until they got bought by Zufa. This was, you know, some this was the underdog that we could root for. It was fun to watch. It was fun to be a part of that. Josh, you and I, of course, both worked for Strikeforce for a time as as contractors. And so it was really cool. And I'm from the San Jose area that I was born in Mountain View. I was raised in the Bay Area. I lived in San Jose for a while. So it was my hometown promotion. It was I was there for the last kickboxing event of Strikeforce. I was there for the first MMA event and then several events. I was there for Corano Cyborg. I was there when Fedor got tapped by somebody that we won't mention again. Uh, you know, the, it just, to me, it was such an important, and, and that's why we do the podcast. You know, that's why we're doing this podcast. And so I, I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful for that. It didn't go the way that I wanted it to, but in the same way that WCW pushed WWF during the Monday night wars to do better, to be better, to deliver more to the audience. I believe, and I don't say, I believe it. it is a fact that strike force drove Dana and the UFC to do more, to do women's MMA, to put on bigger fights, to spotlight, uh, you know, younger fighters, spotlight up and comers that again, without the platform that strike force provided them, maybe we, we, you know, maybe strike, maybe UFC would have got, given them an opportunity. I mean, obviously there's no way of knowing that, but it seems pretty clear that without Scott Coker and strike force, that some of these fighters, both men and women would have never gotten the opportunity they got. So I think we can all be grateful for strike force in that sense as well. Yeah, you know, back when when uh, people were watching UFC in bars on the big screens, you know, and it was like a scene to go out and watch UFC because UFC was like cool and the brand and it was like the hot thing. Strikeforce was an alternative for people like you and I who like didn't want to be like with the frat boys down at, you know, right. the bars watching these the, things. The meatheads that just want to see guys get bloodied up and, you know, broken bones and have no idea what an omoplata is or, you know, why someone's transitioning and, you know, from guard or you know, passing or whatever that you and I would know enough, not that we're experts, but we would know enough to be able to enjoy that and not just be a bunch of meatheads that are drunk and want to see guys kill each other. Hey, I know when the undertaker's trying to put on a go-go plot and he can't do it. He can't <laughs> yeah. do it. I yeah. know how he needs to move his legs. <laughs> I know that. Okay. No, but yeah, my point is those meatheads who just want to like look cool, 
there's strike force was like an alternative for like those fans who like hey we like this sport we like the fact that there's like these fighters here where the focus is on the fighters it's not necessarily on three letters and it's just this incredible opportunity to sort of identify with this underdog promotion and they had this great promotion you know i'll never forget frank shamrock coming out against kung lee and he's got the 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 strike force championship around his um you know his waist and then he's got the 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 um San Jose Sharks jersey, and he just strutted down. And this is not a, a UFC moment. This is a Frank Shamrock moment, you know. And that was, was just really cool, was just giving us a little bit of those alternative entrances that live on in Bellator today, quite frankly. Yeah, and, it's you know, it kind of reminds me of AEW to WWE. That, you know, again, there's an alternative for the hardcores. There's an alternative for the people that, you know, are again, aren't just there for the circus stuff or the – you know, whatever. And not that UFC has ever been big on like the circus fights. I mean, they've done some, you know, stuff like obviously. No, uh, don't say it. Don't say it. You're no, no, no. You're okay. no, no, this, the Randy, the Randy Couture, okay. uh, James Tony fight, James you know, Tony, like, yeah. like stuff like that, like kind of the one offs, you know, the CM Punk stuff. I know that's probably the one you didn't want me to say, but which I don't consider those to be circus fights because they didn't put them in with like, you know, George St. Pierre or something like that. You know, right, right, they, right. At least tried to put him at guys that might be at his level, but hey, anyways. look at Mickey Gall became the biggest star in the sport. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of <laughs> course. All right, well, good stuff, uh, Josh. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. This was fun. Uh, we got some really cool events that are com- coming up that we're going to be covering. Next up is going to be Gilbert Melendez finally back in the cage defending the Strike Force lightweight title against Jorge Masvidal. So that should be interesting. The controversial bout between Chris Cyborg defending. Uh, her her women's featherweight belt against Hiroko Yamanaka. Gegard Musasi is back to take on OS- OSP. And then a fun fight between KJ Nunes and Billy Evangelista. Looking forward to covering that. That should be a good one. Uh, past that, King Mo has agreed to be on the, the podcast in January, so we're working on a date for that. So that should be a fun one. I'm looking forward to that. But that should be pretty cool. Uh, we got some some other events coming or some other events to cover coming up. But we're actually coming to the end of this podcast. We've got uh, about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, only seven more events uh, before we wrap things up. We'll have some different interviews in there as well. So we'll, we'll have some stuff. We got a couple more months at least, but uh, yeah, we appreciate everybody coming on and, and, and supporting us. We really appreciate that. If you want to reach me, you can reach me at Phil at inside the hexagon.com. Would love to hear from you, but we hope that you had a Merry Christmas. We hope that you have a happy new year, a safe and happy new year that uh, make sure that if you, you do drink, if you do party, that you, you take care of business and you make sure you got a, somebody to drive you and or don't travel or whatever it is, but be safe. We want to see you come back in 2022. But again, we appreciate your time. So with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. 
Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.